It's time for truth, a ministry of Truth Family Bible Church in Middleton, Idaho. It's time for truth exists to glorify God through the edification of his saints in our local church and for the benefit of the church around the world. I'm your host, Pastor Danny Steinmeier, and I am joined in studio with my friend and fellow elder at TFBC, Jim Berg. Welcome once again to another episode of the podcast, uh, wherever you may be and whenever you may be listening. Uh, thanks for making us part of your day. We hope that you have been enjoying our series through our church distinctives, as well as we have sprinkled in throughout this season. Uh, we've had a, a few interviews, and though it, it's a bit unscientific, it does seem that our interview episodes are the favorites. We do have a little bit of science involved, uh, and we, we've seen some of the numbers of of listening to some of those interviews, but um, it just from some of the feedback that I've gotten, we've uh, heard that these interviews are some of your favorites, and so we look forward to doing more of those for you in the future. And we have a couple more of those already pre-recorded and in the hopper and ready to uh, to release those in, in the near future, and we'll plan to also do some more, and we, we look forward to those. But before we get into our new discussion of our distinctives at TFBC, Jim, how are you today? Beautiful day. The windows are open in studio. You can hear the birds chirping and the neighbors talking. So it's a it's a beautiful day. And yeah, the interviews are by far my favorite. Danny gets that feedback as soon as we get done the interviews. I go, these are the best. Yep. So I really enjoy them. Yeah, we. I think we. And I think it's unique. Them. I think you know people do podcasts outwardly. We're doing it for our church body, and so interviewing people in the church lets the church get to know each other better. And I just love that. So, and that's the feedback I heard. You know, from the the interview with the shippies as well. I get to know them and we're very blessed. And just another encouragement to that, to, to make use of that, make use of that knowledge and that, that, uh, information about the people in our church to get to know them better, to invite them to your home, to go out and do things together and to uh, really love one another more, uh, make use of it. That's really, uh, I think, another extra value that we want to encourage. Yeah, we're family integrated. We don't have a lot of things on the calendar intentionally so that you can take the time to get to know each other in each other's lives. Take advantage of being family integrated, as you say. Yep, that's 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 true, and that's what we want to want to see happen. It, it works great if you make it work. That's the that's the key idea. So as we get into our topic for today's episode. We come to the next subject of our church distinctives, and that is listed on our website as tulip. And I mean, who doesn't like a tulip, right, Jim? (laughs) Tulips are amazing. But what we're talking about, of course, are the five points of Calvinism, also known as the doctrines of grace. And when you hear the doctrines of grace, if you aren't sure uh, of what that is, it is synonymous with, again, the five points of Calvinism. And I'll explain what those five points are in a bit, but for many people in evangelicalism today, when they hear the term Calvinism, for them it's a turnoff, and they've been taught to cringe at that phrase or at that word. There's a presupposition, a preconceived idea that we are going to be uh, talking about unbiblical or extra-biblical or divisive or things that are too academic in terms of the subject matter, but Um, Some presuppositions center around the use of the man's name, 
and that is giving credit to John Calvin. And they make the point that John Calvin should not be glorified in our minds, especially because there are controversies and persecutions that are connected with his ministry. And so since John Calvin is just a man, we should not be looking to and hitching our wagon to a man's discovery of biblical teaching. And so instead of Calvinism, people have referred to the same body of doctrine as the doctrines of grace. So just know that the doctrines of grace are the same thing as the five points of Calvinism. If the name bothers you, that's okay. I'm not bothered by the name. I'm happy to use uh, the phrase Calvinism. I don't think we need to be shying away from those things, but happy to use the other names too. Yeah, and it's interesting as we get into the church history of this, which I know you're going to do, the majority of church history has been on the side of doctrines of the grace. And, you know, as we talk about new contemporary things coming into the church, as we talk about music, as we talk about all these things, it's really interesting that we look at the history of the church and what has been there as a stable rock is now fundamentally being attacked because of a name instead of actually the scriptures. So I'm glad that we're getting into this and painting this history because it's really important to see I would say who's on what team. Absolutely. And I think that's what this is going to end up doing. This I want to talk about that, actually. That's great. Um, I have no personal hang-up over the, the titling of this study. It's definitely more important to me that we believe the truth with conviction and joy than whether we name it properly in the eyes of, of men. So it's primarily important that we know what we are talking about. And so I'll use both naming conventions interchangeably. And I'm unashamed to call myself a Calvinist, a five-point Calvinist, or that I hold to the doctrines of grace. It's all the same to me because what's important is the doctrines themselves. It's the substance of the doctrine that I love the most. And while I absolutely love the five solos of the Reformation that we just got done talking about, I I don't know, for me, the doctrines of grace, uh, Calvinism is is probably my favorite of... uh, thinking about and discussing these doctrines. Um, and, and I think the wrangling over the name is mostly ridiculous and is often either an attempt to deflect some criticism or to soften some kind of guilt by association, or it is an argument of pride so as to demonstrate that I'm somehow above the controversy and have independently drawn all of these conclusions myself with just my Bible in hand. Uh, and the silliness of all of that is that we will not avoid the stigma that is placed upon us from those who oppose this teaching, no matter what you call it. So we should just confidently own it. So similar to our conversation last week, Jim, the name Christian, for instance, was originally a derogatory term, and yet we we ended up embracing it, and it really became uh, a, a badge of honor to use the name of Christ as that which identifies who we are. And so uh, these doctrines and, and owning what these are about. Uh, That's why I'm I'm saying it's not really about the name, uh, whichever name you choose, but we need to own this and not be shy about really standing with confidence and conviction on these things. So it's helpful just to identify ourselves in shorthand. We do that all the time. We just said like with the word Christian, and that's what's the discussion now about whether Christian nationalism is a good descriptor of uh, what we believe and who we are. But it adds an efficiency to our communication. So sometimes you just say, oh, I'm a, I'm a Calvinist. Usually what that means is you, you believe in these doctrines, these five points. Um, but it gets us past so much digging and questioning to just know where people stand. So I, I think it's important to have these labels. Some people don't like labels. But labels are really important. And actually, I would argue they're unavoidable. But they're shorthand words or phrases 
because it provides clarity to who we are and what we believe. So if you say, for instance, you're a Christian, what does that mean? Now, I remember learning about this concept when I was growing up, and I remember as a kid uh, that Kevin Costner was a Christian because apparently he or his family had gone to one of the local churches in my town. And, and so, or maybe I heard some other celebrity, oh, did you know that so-and-so actor is, uh, is a Christian? Or that so-and-so athlete was a Christian? But then it didn't take very long, and they were using profanity, or they were divorcing their wife, or whatever. And there are lots of people who identify with the label as Christian, but they might mean they are, for instance, Roman Catholic. Uh, they might be a Mormon who identifies as a Christian. And so usually, when you meet someone and they say they are a Christian, the next thing you have to ask is what? What church do you go to? Right. Because at some point, you have to you have to drill down, and when names lose some of their in, their meaning and importance and and distinction, then you have to ask other questions and find other labels and order or names. And usually, all it takes is the name of your church to get some idea of the direction of what kind of Christian you are. Now, it doesn't tell you everything because sometimes it it's the next questions that that continue to drill down. But this is a normal way of communicating. Absolutely, this is the way we ask questions to see if the likeness of this person we're talking to is like us. It's just a, that's the way you behave. That's normal communication is narrowing things down to understand that person and understand where I am in relation to that person. And it's, and it's truly an economy of, of language, right? right? You're, 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 you're saying a lot with a little, right? So for instance, if someone says I'm a Baptist, well, that is almost a meaningless term to get to know what kind of Christian they are. Because the only thing that 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 word now pretty much identifies today is when and how of baptism, but you may believe in lady preachers, you may be woke, you may be charismatic, you may be conservative, you may be liberal, you may be all kinds of things. But when we identify that we are reformed or Calvinist, we narrow things down a bit more into a historical understanding of what the Bible teaches. So if you add Reformed to Baptist, or uh, I'm, a, I'm a Baptist, but I'm also a Calvinist, you begin to narrow things down and identify some of the doctrines and the things that you hold dear. And so we, like I said, we just finished our series on the five solos of the Reformation. And so look, if you haven't listened to those yet, we do encourage you to check those out. But when you get to understanding these terms, you're starting to get into what you believe about the core doctrines of Christianity. So if you don't say you're a Christian, we then start to find out what kind of Christian are you? And so what we're doing with our distinctives is we're saying, these are the kind of Christians that we are and or aspire to be and to uphold. So really, when it comes to the doctrines of grace, you're really dovetailing with last week's episode on the fifth soul of the Reformation, and that's sola deo gloria, uh, to the glory of God alone. So the doctrines of grace are really about the glory of God in salvation. There's nothing to be afraid of here. These doctrinal conclusions, drawn from the text of Scripture, point to the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God, and the glory of God in how he saves a people for his own name. That's what these doctrines are all about. Right. So they, they dovetail with the rest of the Reformation. Um, and so we'll begin now with this study of TULIP. Uh, and I should outline what the TULIP acronym stands for. If you didn't know it was an acronym, you do now. Uh, the T is for total depravity. 
The U is for unconditional election. The L is for limited atonement. The I is for irresistible grace. And the P is for perseverance of the saints. Now, I want to encourage you to study this with us and to study also on your own. And here are some reasons why. First, we should study these doctrines because they are part of pursuing the truth. What is salvation all about? What does the scripture teach? How does salvation work? All of that is part of seeking the truth that God has revealed. And so if you are a Christian, you should seek to worship God better, to know what it is God has done for you. And it is rich, and his word is full of what that means and how that was accomplished. Uh, Second, we should study the doctrines of grace because it affects, I already mentioned actually, our worship. And worship really involves, first and foremost, the engagement of our minds to think of God and his works as they really are. In worship, we speak and we sing of God's wonderful nature, his wisdom and power and knowing who God is, also in relation to who God is, who we are, and what he has done for us in truth. And so if we don't understand the nature of our salvation, then our worship will be small. And I think that's what something, Jim, I think is missed for a lot of people today, that we think that... Um, our worship maybe is just the singing, um, or we just don't have a, a, a good understanding of how rich and how important worship is and, and how it relates to the glory of God and our own good when we know who God is. Yeah, and Danny, I've talked about this. As we grow in sanctification, even through the morning worship service, if all of us are engaged doing our part and the Holy Spirit is growing us, our evening service is more worshipful mm-hmm. because we've grown in the likeness of Christ. I mean, and so that is, that's part of why we need to really understand the doctrines and understand our scripture well and grow. It seems like it's a small thing, yeah. but the scripture also teaches us not to despise the day of small things right. and the, the recognition that through the ordinary means, uh, we grow taller. Right. We grow t- taller in our stature in Christ, in our maturing and our growing. And when when, it, when you sit down for when, when when your kids sit down for a meal, and you go, it's just another meal. It's just your chicken nuggets and whatever you're eating. Right. But actually, it's fuel for growth that they're actually um, maturing and growing. And yet, it was such a small thing, but it's used in a bigger plan and a bigger purpose. Yeah, and Danny, you said it. I'm just going to remind everyone: this is the doctrine of salvation. This is just one of many doctrines that we can study related to God. And as we talked about with our Big Eva uh, podcast, you know, the Calvary Chapel, they are brothers in Christ, even though they have a different perspective on this. And so I want to make sure that everyone knows that you and I are both Calvinists. We're both five points. Um, we prefer doctrines of grace, but we'll go with either label. But the reality is, is, is there are brothers out there that are at different points in their growth and study the scripture is what we would say. Correct. It's not... it. It, you're not required to have a deep understanding of this to be saved. Right. But in being saved, there is such, there, you're missing out on a lot when you don't understand the fullness. And so we would just say, yeah, Calvary Chapel and other Arminian, we'll, we'll get into we'll get those into categories that, right? later. Um, they're, they're brothers and they're saved on the same basis that we are um, by the sovereign work of God in their lives. But the but the reality is, is that there's a there. We would say there's still growth to be had, right. and maturing to have in from God's word. And that's what I would say. I, I grew into this. Yes, is, is the way to to think about it. So, yeah. So our worship can be improved as we study these things. And so, 
do you want to be a good worshiper or just, eh, I, I'm, at least I'm a worshiper and that's good enough. No, I think the, the, the aim for our hearts should be to love God more and to give him uh, what is due. And that goes into our thinking and what we give to God and what we praise him for. Uh, third, we should study the doctrines of grace in order to understand our Christian heritage and our connection to historical Christianity. And I think this is a major issue for today. Um, we must not pretend that we are the first people to read our Bibles, and that all that matters is that I have my own little personal relationship with Jesus. The reality is ours is such a historic faith, and we, 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 we should not minimize the realities of our history and our heritage. Now, these things are actually important. Ours is a religion that uh, spans thousands of years, and it's connected to the saints all the way to Adam and Eve. So therefore, we want to look into the faith that we have received that has been passed down through the ages. And so people get this in their family tree history. Many people are fascinated and interested in genealogies and in their where their family came from, and uh, all everybody wants to submit their DNA and and uh, have them have that DNA record robbed by nefarious government entities or whatever that looks like because they're interested in looking at where I came from and and those types of things. We're doing the same thing in the church with an understanding of our historical roots uh, of Christian uh, of our Christian faith. And we talked about that earlier with this this doctrine that we're going to look at is the history of the church and the history of all that we've had the majority of the time, I would say even the overwhelming majority of the time, doctrines of grace, Calvinism, tulip, whatever you want to call it, has been the norm. And Correct. so everything else is new. And when you look at the names that are associated with the new, it'll shock you. Correct. And we we are not introducing, we've talked about this before, we're, we're charting old paths. Right. We're, we're not wanting to do anything that is um, new. The reality is we are fighting against the thing that is actually newer and is really a, a doctrinal assault on the historic understanding, interpretation, and teaching of Scripture, and we'll uh, we'll get into that more. But just finally, a, a reason to continue studying these things is out of love for God. Just like we increase in love for each other, the more we spend time together, the more we get to know one another, we also demonstrate our love for God by our intentional effort to get to know Him and the truth that he has revealed in the scripture. And so let me just add this um, little bit of what is at stake. What's at stake in these doctrines? What if we don't study these doctrines, or what if we get it wrong? Well, uh, I would suggest that the glory of God is at stake. That again, if we worship him wrongly, and if we don't give him, uh, if we don't praise him and worship him, for who he actually is and what he actually has done and who we are in uh, that vein, then that robs God of, of glory. Uh, I would say additionally, uh, it's about consistent Christian living. Because when we're understanding, for instance, depravity, when we're understanding God's sovereignty, and even perseverance, as opposed to easy believism, it actually has very practical value for what it means to be a Christian every day. So how is it that I view trials and suffering. Well, how sovereign is your God? What Do you understand his purposes? Do you understand that he is not surprised, and in fact, he is involved in the, the circumstances of your life uh, to bring about the good of all those who love him? 
you, you, it requires a sovereign God to accomplish good things through suffering. And actually, if God, I've said this before, if God isn't sovereign over evil, then he isn't God. Um, and so that's really important. It, it, this also has a major impact on what is faithful evangelism. If, if we don't get these doctrines right, then we should be throwing up—you you should expect to see a uh, circus tent set up, and it's, um, it, it really affects the way in which we attract or manipulate or, uh, or, or in some ways try to get people to make a decision— uh, these things, when you understand what the gospel is, <clears throat> when you understand how God works, then that's going to affect the way in which you communicate and uh, witness for Christ. I argue that if we don't study these doctrines, uh, we will be uh, immature. We will be immature in our faith and in our walk. And so if you are wrong in these areas, it will affect your life because doctrine is practical by nature. We always live out our theology. We always live out the doctrines that we, we believe. We all live out our theology. And so these truths are really important for helping you to worship well and to live well as a Christian in the world. It's really interesting because I do think, you know, when we did the Big Eva, there's this idea of spiritual is a good word, but they spiritualize everything. It's look forward to heaven someday instead of, like you said, this practical nature of, this is good for us for life and godliness every day, every moment in the day, every interaction in the day. And there's a huge difference there, Danny, in, in the way that we look at things and the way that we value what God has given us. Absolutely. This is about strengthening us. Exactly. Uh, to face the foe, uh, to face the day, and, and to live to the glory of God. Uh, the question is, is that what you're about? Are you about the glory of God? Uh, or are you about getting out of, just simply about getting out of hell when you die. Right. That's a very self-motivated understanding of salvation as opposed to a God-glorifying sense of our salvation. And the scripture clearly, I believe, calls us to seek the glory of God in our understanding and in our worship. Well, let's talk about some of this historical background. Really, it goes back to the late 300s and early 400s, so that's a long time ago. Uh, we're talking about uh, Augustine. That's how you say it. It's not Augustine. It's Augustine. Depends if you're German or not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> or, or correct or not. And uh, it's Augustine versus Pelagius and uh, the Pelagian heresy. So Pelagius denied the doctrine of original sin, meaning that Adam's sin was his own only and his sin nature has not passed to every man. Now, some of us hearing that would be like, oh, well, that's kind of ridiculous. That's clearly wrong. It's only clearly wrong because we've had a lot of people since Augustine agree and teach and argue from the Scripture that, that fact. But the reality of what Pelagius was doing at that time, it, he didn't have uh, 2,000 years of church history. So Augustine is really on the forefront of addressing uh, somewhat of a new heresy. Therefore, Pelagius emphasized the dominant role of man's free will. Since man is not corrupted by nature and only sins as the result of his choice and has within himself the ability to not sin, man is not in need of radical, regenerating salvation, but instead 
man was able to come to God on the basis of his good and free choice. So basically, it's a very low view of man's sin and corruption. Yeah, Pelagius didn't have children, did he? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting one, right? Uh, the idea that that man is is able on his no own because he is does not have a sin nature that comes from our federal head Adam passed on to all humanity. Uh, therefore, it's simply that's where the emphasis of free will really came in, Jim. Right. Is this is this idea of well, man clearly is able to have a free will because his will is not corrupted. Well, and looking in the world we're at today is is the the godless world that we live in or see, is it neutral? Is it getting more godly or is it getting more depraved? And we all know the answer to that. So right. clearly that uh, individual sin just does not play out. So this man that opposed Pelagius in this view, again, the issue is about the scripture, uh, was Augustine of Hippo. Uh, Augustine was a theological leader uh, who opposed Pelagius and taught the doctrines of total depravity. He taught about limited atonement, predestination, and irresistible grace. And so these historical understandings, remember, we're going back to the to 300, 400, just really early church yeah. uh, types of, of things and discussions and controversies. And so uh, just a, a key point of that, and, and I understand why some people are hesitant about um, using Calvinism, is because of Calvin was not inventing these himself. Right. And uh, so these are historic understandings of the teaching of Scripture. And they were the foundations upon which the reformers, like Calvin, um, more, they, they, they were returning to. So more than a thousand years later, they would look back to Augustine and this battle and other battles uh, to return to. And again, so even the reformers were saying, we're not inventing anything new. We're simply recovering what the church has understood for hundreds of years. So this is why, again, the Reformation was not a new invention of Christianity or some strange and foreign doctrine. The Protestant Reformation was a return to orthodoxy after having gone astray from a faithful interpretation and use of the Scripture. So in other words, long before there was John Calvin, there was Augustine. And so some people do refer to these doctrines in some measure as Augustinianism, uh, and, and that's, there's some legitimacy to that as well. But it's another, there's another reason why some people refer to the doctrines of grace, of course, instead of Calvinism, is this historical understanding. So it was Augustinianism that won the day. It was, it was demonstrated that, that what Augustine was arguing was correctly was correctly interpreting the scripture of what the Bible actually taught, and therefore Pelagius was condemned as a heretic. Pelagius was put down as one who was opposing God and opposing his word. So then he was excommunicated and his teachings were rejected. And we would say rightfully so because of the clear teaching of scripture. Now, even though Augustinianism was dominant during the Middle Ages, Theologians continued to debate the precise nature of God and man's participation in salvation. But now we fast forward to 1509 to 1564, and we come to John Calvin. And some have referred to Calvin's work as systematic Augustinianism. 
And so Augustinianism and Calvinism were seen together, and Calvinism began to be the more modern expression. It was the updated, it was just the updated emphasis of what Augustine and the church had held to for those hundreds of years, but it was definitely tied to the historic interpretations of, August, uh, of Augustine. Calvin had further developed the articulation of Augustinian theology. So his arch nemesis, he also had one who was uh, not actually a contemporary of his. We normally pit uh, Calvin and uh, Arminius together, and yet Jake, uh, jo- or I don't know how you exactly pronounce it, Jacobus Arminius was actually five years old when John Calvin died. So they actually weren't on the same playing field at the same time. But during his life, uh, that's Arminius, um, he was pushing back against Calvinism, which was starting to even spread even more, and Arminius rose to the forefront of the growing debate. And Arminius started teaching that Calvinistic predestination and unconditional election made God the author of evil, and he kicked against what he considered to be theological determinism. So he taught that biblical predestination was based on God's foreknowledge, which meant that God chose people to be saved on the basis of the free will of man's choice. Again, what does that sound like? That sounds like the same type of argument that um, Pelagius was making. And so the condition for salvation was found to be in man, not in God himself. And I just want to make a, a quick uh, clarification here. Um, full Pelagianism would be heresy, and you're outside of the faith, because what you're doing is you are denying original sin and the sin nature and the corruption of, of mankind. You, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really important thing to um, told to. Most Arminians today would not be full Pelagian if they're saved. They're what we would refer to as semi-Pelagian. They're not denying that we are sinners or have a sin nature, but they they kind of have, play this halfway degrees. I'd call it yeah degrees. Yeah. It's sort of this halfway view that says, well, no, we are sinful, we are corrupt, and and we're we're not just totally free, but part of us is free enough to be able to uh, choose God on our own, um, unhindered by our our depravity. Yeah, it's not unconditional election; it's conditional election. It's this idea. It's always. There's always a clause associated with it, so to speak. Yeah. So, so I just want to make sure that we're not, uh, even though while there's there's similarities and and ties to Pelagius, uh, I don't want to say that uh, anybody who disagrees with Calvin is a Pelagi- is a Pelagian and a heretic and is outside the faith. Uh, we just already started off this morning saying that um, that our those who hold to an Armenian position. May very well be brothers and sisters in Christ, so we're not we're not denying that. But, but that's only if they're semi-Pelagian, not so, full Pelagian. Some of that leaked into the Catholic Church, which is kind of how it continued to be available through history as well. I mean, even though this guy was outcast, the reality is the Catholic Church, not completely, as you said, but parts of it were associated, and it fundamentally kept that doctrine available. So, right, it's really interesting. So, in, in looking back again at this history, uh, Arminius wanted to have this debate and wanted to have it out in a church synod or conference. Uh, but the church leaders, they refused as they already were using Calvinistic confessions of faith. So let's just reset the table here. What we're saying is that Augustinian, Calvinistic, five, these five points that we've come to know, these were the norm, normative understanding and teaching of the Christian church for 
hundreds of years, and it was clearly understood as being biblical. And so uh, Arminius is now saying, hey, I want to have this debate. I, I, we, we want to, uh, I want to challenge this publicly and, and, and to go for that. And so that's when there was this desire to have a synod, or, or I use the word conference. But in their minds, the issue was settled, the, these church leaders, and they weren't willing to open it up to debate. Like, this hey. is our modern-day Christian nationalism. <laughs> <laughs> there is a group that wants to talk about it and a group that fundamentally is just trying to ignore it. Yeah. So it's really interesting. So what actually what happened here is Arminius died in 1609 without getting what he wanted. But it was 1618 and 1619 that the Synod of Dort did actually convene, and it addressed the controversy brought about by the followers of Arminius. So again, Calvin is dead. Arminius is dead. Now, but what we're dealing with is the le their legacy of what they've taught and what they promoted. And so just, again, framing this, this discussion and this debate. So what happened was is that the followers of Arminius had brought forward five points. They brought five articles they're called of remonstrance. And what you need to know is that, listen, the five points of Calvinism, or also known as the five canons of Dort, they were a response, listen, to the five points of Arminianism. The, the five points of Arminianism came first. They were the ones that said, these are the things that we want to challenge the church on and an understanding of the scripture. So the five remonstrances were published by the supporters of Jacobus Arminius. Now, like many doctrinal statements, the five points of Calvinism were a response to error. They were a correction against false teaching. And it is not that Calvinism was a new or alien doctrine imposed upon the church. As I've said, it was already the established historic teaching of the church that had been given great voice and prominence under John Calvin, and the synod then rejected the opponents of this doctrine with five points in response called the five canons of Dort. And it is the response to the five points of Arminianism that we get the five points of Calvinism, and so then we get the acronym TULIP. So let's just be clear, Calvin did not say, here are my five points. It was Calvin's disciples who defended the, the, the doctrines that of, of grace that we call them also, and and they were responding with, from two five points with five points. Correct. That, that's what we're dealing with. That, that's where right. this came from. And again, history has you all the way back to Augustine and, and the 300 AD. It's, it's been that way for history. This is the church's position. These guys came up with five points of difference, and the church defended itself. Yeah. Correctly. Correct. It said, uh, no, actually, this has not been an issue of the scripture, this is you guys not being satisfied with the clear teaching of scripture. And Calvin's teaching was the latest available, but it was built off of church history. Correct. So very important. Correct. But we certainly see the importance of those days in that moment. Um, and that's why the, the Calvinist uh, defense of the faith has maintained its prominence because of the reformational uh, heritage that we all stand upon. Yeah, so arguably, somebody calls you a Calvinist, you could say, "Yes, I agree with church history." Yep. I mean, that's that's yeah. the position. Yep. Yep. So, so to start off with, we need to recognize that Calvin did not invent anything new. 
but he gave new life and prominence to the historic Christian teaching that Augustine articulated as a repudiation of the heretic Pelagius. It was Arminius that was fighting back against what the church had taught and held to for over a thousand years, and Calvin himself did not propose Tulip. Tulip was the response of those who had learned from Calvin against the five points of Arminianism. Now, the only reason, again, there are five points of Calvinism is because there were five points of of Arminius, and those were called remonstrances. So the Senate of Dort, they met to address those five views, and they opposed that opposed the church's teaching, and they again responded with the five canons of Dort becoming our TULIP acronym. So that's just a brief summary and introduction of what we are holding out for everyone as our church distinctives. We're holding these things out to see and to remind us of what we stand upon and what we love, what we value, and what we teach. And if you perhaps are a listener and you don't know about these things or you haven't studied them, or maybe you would say, well, maybe I go to TFBC, but I don't necessarily believe those things. Well, you need to know that uh, that your leaders do and that we want you to study and to understand God's word. And we'd like for you to, to consider these and embrace them and just know that this is the direction that our church is taking and we want to uh, worship God for these things. And so you're going to hear them. And, and that's one of the things of, um, I think that I would say about uh, part of about what my preaching includes is that I see these doctrines all over the place, all the time, and I'm going to speak to them, and I'm going to highlight them, and I'm going to call us to worship God for them because they're everywhere. Yeah, so again, real quick on, on church history, it's been doctrines of the grace. You've got these five points coming in, um, Arminianism as we call it, and um, they're counter to what the church has taught. So through church history, we've seen a little bit in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley were part of that, uh, Charles Finney, Dwight Moody actually was part of that, Billy Graham, and then people like Rick Warren. And so today we would see that. And again, this isn't exclusive, but we would see it. Calvary Chapel, we talked about that being an era where we would see it. Um, Wesleyan churches, Pentecostal churches, for example. Mm-hmm. And I would say even the majority of, of Southern Baptist churches today Correct. would teach uh, this counter view to the history of the church. Correct. And so uh, more just making you aware of that for your own uh, background, where you might have come from and why you might believe what you believe. Um, and really hoping that you'll be open to studying this as we go through this together. Correct. And let's let's um, let's make sure that we are clear. Just because it's historical doesn't make it correct. Right. Uh, that's that's not what we're saying. Right. Uh, what we are what we are saying is that the clarity of the scripture has been well attested, and it has been clearly understood. Because we're talking about really foundational issues of the Christian faith, because we're talking about salvation. We're, we're talking about the core right. of Christianity. So we're, we're not really dealing on the fringes here. We're dealing with the heart of what Christian faith is. And I would say this has been rejected once and repackaged and brought back. I mean, that's that's a way to think about the way the world behaves today, Danny, is we, we see something, we reject it, but it never goes away. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. So it's repackaged and it's brought as another attack on the church. Right. On and the that, doctrines. And that happened during the re- time of the Reformation, right? Exactly. Over a thousand years since uh, Augustine. And it's it happens again today. And so that's why we're seeking faithfulness to these historic teachings of, of the Scripture. We're not putting history above the Scripture at right. all. We're saying this is what the Scripture teaches, and we'll get into that more. And laying out the history could, could kind of know where you may have come from. I think that's important to know your yeah, background and too. how that fits. That's true. So, 
I do want to take uh, just a quick minute, and what I'd like to do is what I, I I did teach through these five points of Calvinism and the doctrines of grace in a Sunday night series uh, a while back, and I I used a document that we referred to often, and it's a document that I really liked because it puts the the five points next to each other. So what I'd like to do is is just read the five points of Arminianism and the five points of Calvinism next to each other. And I think they're they're helpful to to hear them that way. So the first, the five, the first point of Arminianism, free will or human ability. Although human nature was seriously affected by the fall, man has not been left in a state of total spiritual helplessness. God graciously enables every sinner to repent and believe, but he does not interfere with man's freedom. Each sinner possesses a free will and his eternal destiny depends on how he uses it. Man's freedom consists of his ability to choose good over evil in spiritual matters. His will is not enslaved to his sinful nature. The sinner has the power to either cooperate with God's Spirit and be regenerated, or resist God's grace and perish. The lost sinner needs the Spirit's assistance, but he does not have to be regenerated by the Spirit before he can believe, For faith is man's act and precedes the new birth. Faith is the sinner's gift to God. It is man's contribution to salvation. Okay, so in hearing that, I I hope that scriptures are resonating in your mind. Now hear the, the response to that type of argumentation from the Calvinist side. And the Calvinist side is total depravity or also known as total inability. Because of the fall, man is unable to him, of himself to savingly believe the gospel. The sinner is dead, blind, and deaf to the things of God. His heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. His will is not free. It is in bondage to his evil nature. Therefore, he will not, indeed he cannot, choose good over evil in the spiritual realm. Consequently, it takes much more than the Spirit's assistance to bring a sinner to Christ. It takes regeneration, by which the Spirit makes the sinner alive and gives him a new nature. Faith is not something man contributes to salvation, but is itself a part of God's gift of salvation. It is God's gift to the sinner, not the sinner's gift to God. So again, you see these really opposing views uh, in that area. Number two, conditional election versus unconditional election. So first, conditional election. That is God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world was based upon his foreseeing that they would respond to his call. He selected only those whom he knew would of themselves freely believe the gospel. Election, therefore, was determined by or conditioned upon what man would do. The faith which God foresaw and upon which he based his choice was not given to the sinner by God. It was not created by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, in other words, but resulted solely from man's will. It was left entirely up to man as to who would believe and therefore as to who would be elected unto salvation. God chose those whom he knew would, of their own free will, choose Christ. Thus, the sinner's choice of Christ, not God's choice of the sinner, is the ultimate cause of salvation. 
and you ought to take a big gulp at that point. Yeah, I'm doing my best not to jump in here, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> well, where did faith come from? No, I'm just kidding. The other side uh, responds well as, as well. So this is an, a description of unconditional election. And again, this is, has to be based on the scripture. God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely on his own sovereign will. His choice of particular sinners was not based on any foreseen response or obedience on their part, such as faith, repentance, etc. On the contrary, God gives faith and repentance to each individual whom he selected. These acts are the result, not the cause of God's choice. Election, therefore, was not determined by or conditioned upon any virtuous quality or act foreseen in man. Those whom God sovereignly elected, he brings through the power of the Spirit to a willing acceptance of Christ. Thus, God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the ultimate cause of salvation. And we give glory to God for that. Number three, universal redemption or general atonement versus limited atonement or particular redemption. So first, we're going to look at the universal redemption or or general atonement. Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but did not actually secure the salvation of anyone. Although Christ died for all men and for every man, only those who believe on him are saved. His death enabled God to pardon sinners on the condition that they believe, but it did not actually put away anyone's sins. Christ's redemption becomes effective only if man chooses to accept it. On the particular redemption or limited atonement side, it says Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only and actually secured salvation for them. His death was a substitutionary endurance of the penalty of sin in the place of certain specified sinners. In addition to putting away the sins of his people, Christ's redemption secured everything necessary for their salvation, including faith, which unites them to him. The gift of faith is infallibly applied by the Spirit to all for whom Christ died, therefore guaranteeing their salvation. And so uh, really the, the idea of does the Scripture teach a potential salvation or a potential atonement, or does he actually purchase sinners unto himself? Does he actually accomplish salvation for sinners. How many rooms does he know to prepare? Just kidding. Keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Number four, the Holy Spirit can be effectively, effectually resisted versus, on the Calvinist side, irresistible grace or the efficacious call of the Spirit. The Spirit calls inwardly all those who are called outwardly by the gospel invitation. He does all that he can to bring every sinner to salvation, but inasmuch as man is free, he can successfully resist the Spirit's call. The Spirit cannot regenerate the sinner until he believes. Faith, which is man's contribution, as I already said uh, in this view, precedes and makes possible the new birth. Thus, man's free will limits the Spirit in the application of Christ's saving work. The Holy Spirit can only draw to Christ those who allow him to have his way with them. Until the sinner responds, the Spirit cannot give life. God's grace, therefore, is not invincible. It can be, and often is, resisted and thwarted by man. Hey, that's a nice side-by-side that just drove by. (laughs) Our window's open, so you may have heard that. 
uh, th that's a real tough one for me, Jim, because that's basically, it, it, it clearly summarizes in this, the reality of, of that position is that man's will is stronger than the grace and, and power of the Holy Spirit. And the Creator, yeah. Man, that's a rough one. For me. That's tough. Um, so the other side, irresistible grace at the Calvinist side, says, in addition to the outward general call to salvation, so that's the normative just public preaching of the word, uh, which is made to everyone who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit extends to the elect a special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. The external call, which is made to all without distinction, can be and often is rejected, whereas the internal call, which is made only to the elect, cannot be rejected. It always results in conversion. By means of this special call, the Spirit irresistibly draws sinners to Christ. He is not limited in his work of applying salvation by man's will, nor is he dependent upon man's cooperation for success. The Spirit graciously causes the elect sinner to cooperate, to believe, to repent, to come freely and willingly to Christ. God's grace, therefore, is invincible. It never fails to result in the salvation of those to whom it is extended. And that's a wonderful truth. Finally, number five, falling from grace versus perseverance of the saints. So those under falling from grace, those who believe and are truly saved can lose their salvation by failing to keep up their faith. Now, I just want to pause for a second. It, it, there is an inconsistency in most, I would say, modern Armen Arminians. And you have to be careful. You don't want to say Armenians because that's a nationality. That, that's an ethnic group. Uh, Arminian would be this, this doctrinal position. And in most Arminians today, I would say, are, are inconsistent here because they believe that you can't lose your salvation. Uh, but that's a um, that's actually leaving this system of understanding uh, how the gospel works, because they put the prominence of man's free will to believe, but they deny that he has a free will to leave. So once you're once you're saved, you no longer have a free will to choose to leave. That's sort of a strange one, but and that's why I, I wanted to highlight the inconsistency here. The five points of Arminianism would argue that you absolutely can lose your salvation or uh, or turn it in or reject it or walk away from it. And uh, so I'll just continue here in this description side by side. Um, I'll just read it again. Those who believe and are truly saved can lose their salvation by failing to keep up their faith, etc. All Arminians have not been agreed on this point, some have held that believers are eternally secure in Christ, that once a sinner is regenerated, he can never be lost. And again, that's my point of inconsistency is, well, so do you lose your—coming to Christ means you lose your free will? That yeah. seems a funny one. I and I, and we wouldn't see this necessarily in a Baptist church. Like you said, that would be inconsistent. But in the Nazarene church that we know of, that would be that you can lose you your— can lose your, exactly. your salvation. So that's yes. a good way of applying that to the way it looks today. So I would say that the inconsistent Baptist that says you can't lose your salvation is more correct than the Arminian that says that maintains the consistency of this erroneous view of of salvation, uh, who believes you can lose your salvation. Right. And again, we're talking about uh, a significant difference in how you live because your assurance of salvation, uh, the way in which you maintain your salvation, the fear, uh, all those things in that type of religion. 
Um, Brings it, you back to workspace. I'm sorry uh, to say it. You, that's yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. So it gets it gets tricky if you think you can lose your salvation. The issue is where is that grounded? Right. Um, so and then finally, number five on the Calvinist side, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Also, um, I think there's hand in hand with that is the preservation of the saints. Perseverance and preservation uh, would go together. So this one says, all who are chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, and given faith by the Spirit are eternally saved. They are kept in faith by the power of Almighty God and thus persevere to the end. So this is just, again, a, uh, we just wanted to put these side by side as these are the historic debates, and we're wanting to have a consistent historical understanding of the proper interpretation of Scripture what does the scripture teach? And, uh, and we think that's pretty clear. And so in the next several episodes, we will be going through these five points and looking at them biblically and highlighting their importance and value for us as believers for our lives and for our worship. So again, in the next episode, we'll look at the first doctrine of grace. That is the T. It stands for total depravity. And really, Jim, when it comes to the doctrines of grace, when you rightly understand the T, everything else really falls into place. Doesn't yeah, and it? how many times have we talked about this? This is the, really the one. So as you go into this, if you're going to focus your energy and study on one, this is the one. And so um, a good good idea is we've got your teachings already on YouTube. We can link that into the podcast area. So we will teach on it here, but we'll also give you another resource to add on to that. So we'll make that available for everyone out there. Okay, so we'll look forward to our next time together talking about total depravity. But that's all the time that we have for truth today. So we want to thank you for joining us. And until next time, we hope that you will grow in your love and commitment to Christ and his church as we are sanctified in the truth. God's word is truth.